and I think it's got something to do in a sense with this, but it just made me laugh. Uh, there was children, they just, they speak out what they see, what they feel, what they think, often without realising the implications of it. When I was teaching, this is nothing to do with it, but when I was teaching uh, a reception class um, a few years back, I was, try I was trying to explain about pearls that you get in ocean in oysters. Uh, and, and I, was I was struggling with the, you, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about, Grace, when you're trying to explain something to four-year-olds and you're struggling to find the words. And so I was trying to explain to this class of 30 kids what pearls were. And I could see these, and I said, you find them, you know, you find them in the ocean in, in oysters. And they were kind of, oh, looking at me like I was some strange thing. And then I was saying, well, they're, they're small and they're shiny and they kind of, and then it came to me, I said, oh, oh, some women, often women wear them round their necks. Uh, and, and this little boy went, oh, oh, I know, yes, I know, I know. And I said, oh, you know? He said, yes, snakes. The mind of children. I, I don't know what his mother did for a living, but th that's what came to him in the moment. And so children sometimes say those sort of things, don't they? Yes. Um, that completely, they sort of say it as they see it. There was a, so what I read this morning was about this church um, uh, in the UK. And kind of, it was a, a sort of a mix, I think it was probably a Baptist church. Uh, and it was a mixture of ages. And they asked one of the really old gentlemen to go and speak to the Sunday school class to the really small small ones. Um, and he went to chat. He was a very pious gentleman, apparently. Uh, he wasn't known, for he, and the church wasn't known, but he was a very pious chap. And he went to the church and sat there and introduced himself and then said, why do you think they call me a Christian? <laughs> it's a dangerous question, isn't it? Well, there was a long pause, a bit embarrassed silence, and then little one little boy at the back said, because they don't know you. <laughs> what a great answer, what a terrifying answer. And when I read that, it made me laugh, because I remembered when I was little, one of my brothers had a poster in his room that said, uh, it was something like, it. I, I can't remember what it was, it was something along the lines of, um, if you were prosecuted for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to con convict you? That sort of thing. You've probably seen posts like that. Would there be enough evidence to condemn you? Um, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to walk the walk? Wh what should that look like? And we also know that appearances don't always dictate what's truly there. Um, I once owned a car that I, uh, I renovated when I was 17 years old. My parents bought uh, a car to show how old I was. It was my mum's hairdresser's car and it had been dumped in a field in her garden for about three years. And when we went to look at this car, um, I, sort of I was with my dad and uh, he, he sort of said, well, how much for it? And she said, 200 pounds. And I thought, I thought, that's nothing. I went, 200 pounds? All right, 150. <laughs> and that was so cheap. And I thought, this is incredible. I thought 200 was cheap. Now you're off in 150. Anyway, I got this car home, restored it, um, and discovered it looked amazing on the outside. But it was all rust and filler. And it just, you know, there was nothing substantial there. And if I'd ever hit anything, the whole thing would have fallen apart. We can look the part. The church can look the part. We as Christians can look the part. But is it authentically there? And that's what some of the challenge of the letters to, to Jesus writing to the church, you know, even to the church in Ephesus, who clearly were doing amazing things and great deeds and great works. But Jesus said, but you've lost your first love. You know, there's like a hollowness to it. So there's all these churches. And we are, I, I recognize it's quite challenging, some of this teaching. It's not an easy series of preachers. Um, but I think it's important. So we're nearly there, the seven churches. 
and we've heard these are letters. If you've not been tracking, you can go online and pick them up later on. These are letters that are written effectively by Jesus to the churches through John, the Apostle John, and, and he's addressing these, these churches in, in Revelation. First church we looked at was, who remembers? Just said it. Ephesus. Yeah, Ephesus. They had forsaken their first love, and they were told, return, return to your first love. Second church we looked at was Smyrna. Paul Wakey spoke about that, under great persecution, persecution coming, and they were encouraged not to be afraid, but to remember, remember God's faithfulness. Then the church at Pergamum, which are kind of engaging in all sorts of um, compromised moral lifestyle, and, and Jesus is pleading them to wit for them to refuse to compromise, stand firm. And then the church of Thyatira, where some of the believers there were choosing to be tolerant about sin, and there was teaching that was misleading people and confusing them. And, and, and the, the urge was to resist, resist the enemy's attempt to cause division and disunity and, and, and false teaching that kind of tears the church apart. And then last week, we were looking at the church of Sardis, a church that looked alive outwardly, a bit like my car, looked great, but was actually fast asleep, spiritually dying and sleepwalking into oblivion in a sense. And we looked at the history of that city. Remember I said it, had, it was invulnerable, it seemed. There was one pathway in, it was the only point of capture. And that city was once captured because one guard fell asleep on the gates and the whole city was taken. It's interesting history that mirrored what Jesus was saying to the church there. Wake up, remember, re reawaken your, your call and passion. So tonight we come to Philadelphia. Um, and I found something really, I found something really interesting. Again, I read this not long ago um, that I think may help us to understand why I think reading these letters in these days is really important. Because we can read it as a theological interesting thing, thinking Jesus was speaking to these churches some 2,000 years ago. As I've said, I've been fortunate enough to go to one of them and see it in Ephesus and see the remains and walk amongst it, which kind of brings it alive in some ways. But this did happen some 2,000 years ago. What Jesus was saying to the churches then, is it really important for me today? Why might it be super important in these days? Well, here's an illustration that may help you. Back in 2011, the New York Times wrote this article, and I found it recently. It's really, really interesting. And in this article, I guess he was an anthropologist, wrote about this stone that he had found, um, discovered on, on the coast of Japan, sort of up in the hinterlands, uh, in, inland. And he went to explain what this stone was for. This stone tablet had stood in this forest, forested hillside since before anyone in the village was born, because he was asking, what does it mean? Why is it there? It had been there for generations. But the villagers in this village had faithfully obeyed a stark warning that was scratched into this, the weathered face of this stone that had been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And what it said on this stone was, do not build your homes below this point. And this guy's like, what on earth is this thing here for? Why is it this? And what does it mean? But for generations, the villagers in that area had built above the stone. No one had gone below it. So he did a bit of research, and what he discovered, the residents there say, and, and I'm reading from the article, say this injunction from their ancestors kept their tiny village of 11 households safely out of the reach of deadly tsunamis that had wiped out hundreds of miles of Japanese coast and rose to record heights near here. The waves, there was one recently, just after, before he had written this article, where the waves stopped just 300 feet short of the stones. He writes, these ancestors knew the horri horror of tsunamis, so they erected that stone to warn us, said the villager. 
Hundreds of so-called tsunami stones, some more than six centuries old, dot the coast of Japan all the way around. Silent testimony to the past destruction that these lethal waves have frequented upon the earthquake-prone nation. I find that fascinating. Here's stones stuck in the ground that say, you need to build above this land. You might not know why, but one day when a wave hits, if you're above this line, you will be saved. But if you're not, you're at great risk of peril. Messages from the past serving to protect and safeguard those living in the present. So when we approach these letters in Revelation, in fact, I would say when we approach the whole Bible, we see something similar. But instead of messages from some unknown ancestors warning of the tsunamis from the sea, we have a message from Jesus himself warning us of the very real dangers of tsunamis of sin that can overwhelm us, real peril. They're his words speaking to us, his stones, if you like, planted on the hillside, correcting us, warning us, and actually, in the case of our letter today, encouraging us and comforting us, telling us to keep going. So these letters stand like tsunami stones in the landscape of the Bible, and each sends an urgent message relevant in some way to the church of today. So Wayne's going to come and read uh, today's letter. Thanks, Wayne. The reading today is from Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. To the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed you before an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will, I, will they leave it I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Wayne. We need to have ears to hear, don't we? That's a prayer. It's a good prayer that we should be praying every day. Lord, would you help me hear, Holy Spirit, what it is you're saying to me, to us, to the city, to the nation uh, in these days. Um, so out of the seven churches, of the letters that are written in Revelation, there's only this church and Smyrna that kind of in one sense receive unqualified praise and approval. There's no warning. There's no kind of challenge to remain faithful or to get this sin sorted out. Um, so the question is then, well, what's the tsunami stone, if you like, 
that Jesus has left for us to read and understand from his letter to the church in Philadelphia. What might he want to say to us today? This isn't just historically interesting. It's a stone on a hillside. Learn from this. Understand. We've been this way before. You need to hear and understand. That's what this letter's for. I think it's important to listen to how Jesus introduces himself in verse 7. The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Uh, that, to me, is what jumps out in this letter. Those, I mean, there's lots we could look at. Each week, there's so much, but these things really jumped out at me. Firstly, he's the Holy One. This is the distinctive attribute of God. He's set apart, he's perfect, he's pure. And certainly for me, as I grew up, you know, the holiness of God was a fearful thing. And in one sense, it should be. He is holy and pure and glorious. And we can sometimes, our response to that can be, well, I feel such a worm, I'm so filthy, I'm so wretched. I'm, and that's why we need Jesus' grace. That's why we need the cross. And the cross means that actually we can be received. We can be, we can be holy because he's holy. His ability to transform our hearts. But I think we have to choose holiness. And as we choose holiness, we, we're choosing God. We're choosing to be after him. So there is a, there's a cry in these days to choose holiness. There's a desperation, I think, for the church to be holy. And we have to recognize that we haven't always been holy. The way we've used our time, our money, our words, our resources, the ways we've judged others, the ways we've been critical or divisive, or we haven't always been holy. What we do in the darkness compared to what we do on Sunday, live in this kind of, kind of schizophrenic life of Christianity and then dabbling in the world and where God says, I want you like a stick of rock. Wherever we cut you, there's holiness in you. Holiness doesn't mean boring. Holiness means choosing the path of life and light that is transforming and glorious and wonderful. So he's holy, first of all. Secondly, he's true. Jesus cannot lie and he keeps his word. He's fully trustworthy always and in every way. That's a really reassuring thing in, in shaky moments in our lives and where we're on shifting sands. Jesus is true. He's the way, the truth, and the life. It's who he is. It's not just one of his attributes. He is truth, faithful and true. I love that image in Revelation. There's a, there's a, a, it talks about a white horse whose rider is faithful and true, Jesus. So he's holy and he's true. But lastly, this bit that really jumped out to me as I prayed about this and thought about this is he's the one who opens and shuts the doors. He, that means he's sovereign over everything. Ultimately, Jesus is Lord. On his throne, he is sovereign. He's powerful and he's able to shut and open doors. And he's the key holder. That speaks of authority and sovereignty. You know, there's lots of stuff going on in the world right now. Lots of shakings in the church, out of the church, in the nation, in the nations, in individuals' lives. But Jesus is still on his throne. Amen? Yeah, that was, that was, quite, that was almost Pentecostal, wasn't it? He is on the throne. And sometimes we get, you know, we forget that. We just get overwhelmed by this tsunami of fear or anxiety or turbulence and troubles. And but we have to remember that he is sovereign. He is on the throne. I've been thinking a lot about the times in which we live. I think reading Revelation will do that to you. You know, I guess every age thinks they're in the, fin the last days, don't they? But it feels like the days we're in are so challenging, aren't they? Reading Revelation makes you think about the end times and the state of the nation and the nations. But I also had a conversation with Mark this week. I think reading the news at the moment makes you reflect on the times we're in. 
And if you read the news, or if you spend any time on social media, following and kind of critiquing and looking at people's views on stuff, let me just say, I'm not sure that's a very healthy place to dwell and spend much time. We need to be aware, and it's a fine line, isn't it? We need to be aware of what's going on in the world, but we can be so overwhelmed by people's emotions and feelings and what they're thinking and the kind of anger that often comes out. If you spend any time on Twitter, 90% of it these days just seems to be people ranting um, or in social media and the critiquing of self and others. And if you read the newspapers, if you watch the news on telly, it's hard, isn't it? It's often people's subjective views, but also this sort of, and it's always been the case, I guess, but an overwhelming sense of this is bad and this is bad and this is bad and this is really bad. It's hard. It's, it's, wear, it's, it's wearing. It b- is pretty bleak and doom-laden and quite heavy, and it's easy to become overwhelmed by all of that stuff. But Jesus is still on the throne. He is. And strangely, I've been taken back recently over the last couple of weeks to a sermon I preached during the COVID, I think it was, in the COVID isolation. Um, and I think it's really key for us today, and I keep coming back to this, this verse. There's a strange verse from a, from a passage and an account in 1 Chronicles 12. It won't be one you'll often go and look at, perhaps, but you may remember this verse. Verse 32 talks of the children of Issachar. The children of Issachar who were men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Sons of Issachar, I won't go into it all now. You can go back and perhaps hear that sermon. It's probably on, on, on our kind of website somewhere. The sons of Issachar were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel. And this verse, in this verse, the word understanding, because the verse is the children of Issachar had understanding of the times. The word understanding is a Hebrew word, bina. It means to have insight, to be able to act with prudence and kind of revelation. So they didn't just understand facts. They didn't just look, look at the news and go, well, it's pretty awful, isn't it? Pretty gloomy. But they had an ability to analyze what was really going on and what was really behind it and how to apply that understanding to bring change, to do something, to act, and ultimately, most importantly, in the midst of it, to follow what God wants to bring change and transformation. The sons of Issachar knew what to do because they understood what was happening, having gained insight and wisdom from God. So in those days, for example, there's this kind of tension between Saul as king, who's a failing leader in every way, and David, who's kind of in the a man waiting in the kind of wings. These sons of Issachar could discern what God was doing and when he was doing it. They knew when one move of God was ending and a new season was beginning. They could discern when a leader was failing and another le- the right leader was rising up. And they could tell even who the next leader would be, should be. They knew who to follow and when to follow him or her. But most importantly, it wasn't their own human wisdom or excellence of insight. They excelled in the knowledge of and ways and laws of God. They were full of wisdom but it was God's wisdom. So why am I saying that? Well, the days we're in, when you look at the state of the nation and the state of politics and the financial kind of challenges that maybe many of us here are experiencing, and we look at the global struggles of climate change and wars and rumors of wars and international breaking down diplomacy and all sorts of challenges, it it can overwhelm us. And we think, God, what's going on? And, And who am I, this tiny little person in the midst of it, with all my troubles that I face paying the bills, trying to get a job, people around me striking, all the rest of it. What might it mean for us? What might it mean to know God's ways in these days and to know how to respond? Psalm 90 verse 12 says this, Teach us to number our days 
that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Time is a funny thing. We're so limited by time. If I ask you how many times a day you look at your watch or your phone, see what time it is, we're, we're bound by meetings and rushing to places and from places, and we, we decide when we're eating at a time and school pickup time and when my essay deadline is and my job work thing needs to be. And we, time's a thing, isn't it? How many of you have read The Hobbit here? Any of you read that? Those of you that can't read, have you seen the film? <laughs> um, the Hobbit, Tolkien. Is that, do you remember the bit where, where Gollum tries to stump Bilbo with some riddles? I read it. It was one of the first books I remember reading. This is one of his riddles. This thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays kings, ruins towns, and beats high mountains down. I should have done it by voice, my precious. But I can't do that. I'll just traumatize you. What's he, what's he speaking about? Yeah, time. Time devours all things. It eventually kills all birds and beasts and living things. Time slays both kings and commoners. And through the ages, even wears down mountains. He's talking about time. And Go Gollum seems to paint quite a dreary picture of time. And many of us, as we get older and I look in the mirror, I can identify with some aspects of that. But I want us to think in a different way. I think time itself, I would suggest, in Jesus, has been redeemed. The days of our lives, of your life and my life, when you follow Jesus and you give your life to him, are redeemed for an eternal purpose. You are no longer supposed to be just bumbling through life, getting irritated by the media <laughs> or people or frustrated with everything around you. Our days shouldn't be endlessly filled with dismay, but I would suggest with hope and with anticipation because you have been redeemed for an eternal purpose in these days. And I think the people in Philadelphia knew that. Because life was not easy for them. They were under massive challenge. And yet somehow they were staying faithful. And clearly Jesus really approved of them and was really warm towards them. And they understood that, that he was giving them an open door to do things. Your days and the days in which we live really matter. I know they're challenging for many, but they really, really matter. Why? Well, I think the biblical way for us to understand time is to equate it with opportunity. Opportunity, otherwise known as time, is a set of circumstances, I would suggest, orchestrated by an eternal, sovereign, ageless and limitless God who is on the throne uniquely in your lives and our lives. This particular time kind of steered by God. God be like Esther. For such a time as this, she was raised up. Do you think that was just Esther? I think every single one of you, God could say, you are here right now because I want you to be here right now. Part of my eternal solution for Bath, for the university, for your friends, for your family. You're part of God's plan. You are not an accident. You didn't just wander into life. God has created you for a purpose. And every day, with the limitless God behind you is an opportunity to see his kingdom come. Today, this day, Sunday, is unique. And with this particular day comes a unique set of opportunities for us all. Yes, challenges, no doubt. But unique opportunities, not just individually, but globally. We, the Church of Jesus, are created to do eternally significant things. Do you think that's true?
<laughs> Victoria does. She definitely does. That's, that's good. I mean, we kind of expect the answer is yes, because the preacher's asked it, so we probably should say yes, otherwise it look very faithless, don't we? But I do believe it. So I'm going to say it again. We, the Church of Jesus, and that isn't everyone else. <laughs> that is you. If, you know, if you love Jesus and have got a pulse, you're part of the Church of Jesus. What's it for? Is it just that we look nice and shiny and we have a bit of a nice time? No, I don't think so. I think you are in the church in these days. You are part of his family, created, redeemed, and loved in order to do eternally significant things. And you might think, well, I'm just doing my own little bumbling thing. But actually, that has ripples. And if it pleases Jesus because you're being obedient to the call, you have no idea what transformation that can do. How your one conversation with someone bring a bit of light and love to them could have eternal consequences for them. And who they become in the kingdom, the seed of it is in your little moment of love, reaching out with compassion and kindness. Or your words of love that sow the seed, that reap a ridiculous harvest that you have no idea about. We often don't know. Sometimes we do have amazing opportunities to do really big, significant things that we're aware of. But most of the time it's going on behind our back. And God is sowing into it, doing beautiful things. If we choose to be hopeful and bright-eyed and expectant that God can use us. Or we just become overwhelmed by the news. And we think, well, sod this. This is too like, hard work. And we give up. I don't see Jesus creating a church that just gives up. So what might that look like? Let's root this in reality. Well, if uh, Revelation 3.8, Jesus speaks these amazing words to that church. Behold, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. That is incredibly encouraging. That's why if you're going for a job right now, you should be praying, Jesus, if this is right for me, will you open the door and hold it open? Knowing that that's what he does. And Jesus, if this is the wrong door, if this is the wrong relationship, if this is the wrong path, will you shut it? That's a more dangerous prayer to pray, but I would suggest it's a really good prayer to pray because it's saying, Jesus, I want you on to be the throne of my life. Because Revelation says that if he holds the door open, no one can shut it. And if he shuts the door, no one can open it. I've shared this story before, and I, I won't go into detail, but there was a time when I was in my third year at university, or was going to be in my third year, and I was convinced I was supposed to go to Spain for my year out. And when I say I was convinced, I had told everyone, including the Lord, that that's what he wanted for me. That was probably the beginning of my mistake. But I was genuinely, hand on heart, I thought that was the right thing. I wanted to go to France, Spain, because then I wanted to go to South America and become a missionary and serve God there and bring revival. That's what I thought. I thought I was being obedient. I was being very spiritual. So I applied like everyone else to go to various places. And I, I applied with about 25 other people to go to Spain for my year out. And, and I was rejected, which came as a bit of a shock to me. And I thought, well, this is just spiritual opposition. You have to pr press through and pray and overcome the demons. And eventually the door will open. So I, I, I prayed and wrote a letter. And they said no. And then I got really cross. Uh, and then I discovered there were about five, six of us, there were six of us who had also been rejected going to Spain. So we all got together. We worked out what we were going to say. We all wrote letters and wrote to the dean. So we, we want to go for these reasons. Please let us in. And uh, all six of us got answers back and the other five were allowed to go and I wasn't. And by that point, I was seething. <laughs> I was like, because I was convinced. And I went and petitioned and I spoke to people and I just got a no. No, no. And, no and, and the weird thing in the university, no one knew why. It was always, well, another department, we, we're not quite sure, we, we can't track why the, the uni said no, it must be another department. Now, of course, in the end, 
I went to France, which I was very angry about, but had the most life-changing life of my year where I met with God so ludicrously. I couldn't have been anywhere else. That was the center of God's will. When Jesus shuts the door, he means it. (laughs) And he does know better than us. You know, as irritating as it was, and I was irritated. I was cross with God. I was irritated. I kept telling him, don't you know what you're doing? Don't you realize that would be much better to go to Spain? It was a humbling experience to learn. Looking back, of course, he knows what he's doing. When God shuts the door, no man can open it. And when God opened the door, some of us here will have experienced ludicrous grace, falling into things that we definitely weren't qualified for, definitely shouldn't have happened. And you think, how did that happen? Well, God opens the door. And me being vicar here, I mean, that's one of those things. God is good and kind. A door of opportunity. I wonder what door of opportunity the Lord might be holding before you right now. You know, it might be a job. It might be a new location. It might be a new opportunity. It might be a new friendship. It might be a new opportunity within the place that you're working. It might be a door of opportunity into a neighbor to have conversation with them. It could be a big thing or a small thing. What door of opportunity is the Lord opening for you right now? Because the sensible thing to do is go through that door and to ask him to open doors of opportunity, to work and to serve Christ, to do specific works that will help build his kingdom. Amidst all the kind of turmoil and challenge we face, instead of being overwhelmed by that and going, oh, I hate everything, to say, Lord, will you open some door of opportunity to further the kingdom today in my life and through me? I think that's a really biblical thing. And... uh, Paul uses that kind of expression in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. He says this, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. It's really interesting that apparently the door of opposition, the door, the open door and opposition aren't mutually exclusive. He's in a place where there's loads of opposition. It'll be easy to go, therefore I'm going to clear off out of here. But he says, no, there's a, there's a door of opportunity. There is loads of opposition against me but there's a door of opportunity, so I have to step through it. I wonder what doors of opportunities we might be experiencing in these days amidst the very evident trials that seem to be happening on all sides, the tribulations that we live amongst, the difficult days financially, emotionally, globally. I think it's to do with our perspective, which is why media and secular culture can be deeply unhelpful. (laughs) and Perhaps challenges can be positively refining rather than simply negatively destructing. So what what am I talking about? And I'm going to finish with these things. So here's some headlines. It's really easy to write these, by the way, and you will be able to add a lot more. Here's the headlines right now. The economy is unsettled right now. I don't know if any of you have noticed that. It's pretty hairy out there financially, job-wise, strike-wise. Both production and supply chains are disrupted for all sorts of reasons. I was having a couple of new doors fitted. And the um, builder said, I could try and order you hardwood frames for them, but the waiting list is three months at the moment. I mean, that's just doors for frames. I can get softwood, but hardwood's about three-month waiting. You think, why? Actually, the whole global chain of network and supply is in a real mess post-COVID for all sorts of reasons, war and other reasons. Businesses lack workers. There's rising wages. Um, People would like rising wages. There's strikes, labor issues. Which is affecting the cost of everything. I mean, some things like bread and eggs and thing has gone up. I'm looking at my wife because she knows these things more than me. But I mean, like, you know, food bills have doubled, trebled for some people, haven't they? It's crazy. 
poverty rate is rapidly growing with inflation, meaning real wages have been dropping steadily for a while. So because everything's going up in price, but the wages aren't going up at that rate, effectively everyone's poorer. Therefore, the poverty gap and poverty rate is increasing. Immigration, are you aware that's in the headlines quite a lot in the UK? Just a little bit. Continually hits our headlines, doesn't it? And, and, and the UK is now probably more ethically diverse than we have been for generations, which for some is causing real tensions, judgments, and then political fallout on all sides and point finger pointing and all sorts of acrimonious kind of awful accusations and terrible stuff. Then if we want a real laugh, let's look at the rate of church attendance. It's probably it's low, it is the lowest it's ever been. UK church membership has declined from 10.6 million in 1930 to 5.5 million in 2010. That's halved. Or as a percentage of the population from about 30% back then to about 10% now. Um, if the current trends continue, membership will fall to about 8% of the population by 2025. Church decline in many churches, not all churches, has fallen off a cliff. Globally, the Church of England, very much so. Not so much evangelical churches, but globally it has. You enjoying it so far? Then we've got a crisis in theology. I, it's interestingly, in, in the US, which we think is a very spiritual country, 30% of evangelicals think Jesus was a good teacher, but not necessarily God. 30%. This has been a study done recently in the States by a theological think tank. A third of evangelicals aren't sure that Jesus was God. 35% disagree that the Holy Spirit gives a new spiritual birth or new life. 17% agree that modern science disproves the Bible. This is evangelicals. 46% think most people are good by nature and that sin's not really a thing. And 42% agree that God accepts the worship of all religions. So theologically, there's loads of kind of tearings and rippings and changes and challenges. And then there's housing. You young guys, you'll know that it's massively expensive in the UK. And cars, the prices of cars, the second-hand cars is going through the roof. Then there's political tensions here and abroad. Then there's racism. How do we address the challenges, awful challenges of racism in our nation and globally? And then the whole Me Too stuff, you know, the, 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 the oppression of women, misogynistic stuff, and how women historically have been treated, the way we treat each other sexually in our culture is appallingly bad and has been and seems to be worse. And then all the challenges of identity. So you're feeling positive? These are some of them. I mean, you could add a million other things, couldn't you? But these are some of the very real challenges that if you go to the newspaper or, or kind of look, switch the news on, you're going to hit at least two or three of those, I guarantee it, every day plus. And not in a good way. So what if, and I'm going to finish with this, you'll be delighted to know, instead of seeing those things as obstacles or being consumed by them and just being overwhelmed by them as problems, or, as sometimes happens, we use them as an opportunity to unleash our anger and we rage my father, who's a lovely man, <laughs> has been banned by my mother from watching BBC Morning News because she's terrified he's going to have a heart attack because he gets so angry. <laughs> I was feeling with him, and he's quite a calm man, but when he watches the news, he just loses the plot, you know, he starts raging at the, I don't know whether it's left wing or right wing or whatever wing he's on, but he, he just, and we unleash our anger as a way of venting. How about, instead of all of that, 
we see them as open doors or opportunities to spread the gospel and represent Jesus and introduce people to the beauty and life of the kingdom. That they're open doors to us, perhaps. So when it comes to economic uncertainty, well, maybe it's an open door to look for business to support and people to help, that the church can respond positively. How about when it comes to poverty? Well, that's an open door for us to be ludicrously generous to those in great need, to make a stand for justice, to love people, to help people find jobs or resources or get into education and find the skills that they need. And lots of churches are great at doing this. Let me just say, if you're looking for a job at the moment, we've got a great hit rate of praying people into jobs, haven't we? So, you know, we'll do that for you. Or what about kind of immigration and the changing demographics that are kind of impacting nations and particularly countries like us? Well, maybe it's an open door to learn from the incredible variety of the image bearers of God that are coming to our lands, bringing new skills and new understanding and new ways. More specifically, many of the immigrants who come into this country actually are more Christian than we are as a country. So maybe we've got a lot to learn from them and take the opportunity to worship with them in, in a way that kind of pushes us towards the image that we see in Revelation of all tribes and tongues and nations together. It's a beautiful thing to gather together to honor them and stand with them, to be a place of refuge and welcome. Low church attendance, well maybe we need to open a door to reimagine new wineskins and to try new things and to ask God to show us how to do church instead of telling him how we should do it. To reach out of the building with love rather than always trying to bring people in. And where there's big, huge cracks and divisions in theological understanding and complete ignorance increasingly, well, m maybe that's an open door to encourage people to study scripture more than ever and to re represent the truth wherever we go. Go girl, theologian, front row. To actually really invest in study and understanding the beautiful it. Where there's political tensions, to be, uh, have an open door to be peacemakers. Where there's racism, to open door to talk about the values and dignity of all human beings and to love and to welcome all people together, to give people a voice often whose voices are silenced. And the Me Too movement and all the kind of sexual trauma that people have gone through, well, it's, a, it's an open door to commit ourselves to honoring each other with our eyes, our words, our thoughts, our actions, and to teach our children to do the same, to understand the value of humanity and how that we're fearfully and wonderfully made and that women are beautiful, not to be treated as objects, but as wonderful sisters. And to recognize how Jesus brought love and acceptance to the outcast, to the shamed, to the shattered. And around issues of identity, well, it's an open door to talk about why we believe seeing ourselves as God sees us and who we are in Christ. And that sense of identity that we get from him above all other things that brings a stability and a purpose to our lives. So every day we live is unique and special. Every day God gives us open doors. And instead of being overwhelmed by sin, let's be a people who look to him with hope. I believe it's our call and it's our mandate. And the church in Philadelphia, I think, experienced some of this. Amongst real challenge and pressure, as they did, they remained faithful. Because they knew Jesus was giving them open doors to be a people of love and hope. Time. Every day goes past but maybe every day gives us a fresh opportunity. And we've missed it. We recognize we've, we've missed opportunities in the past. But tomorrow, God's mercy is in you every morning. There's a new, a fresh opportunity to see his kingdom come. We live in glorious, challenging, painful, magnificent days, all of that mixed together, don't we? 
but every day is a u- unique opportunity to do something eternally significant to build his church with our lives. So I'd love to pray for us. It's nice to do a le- read a letter that isn't kind of really <laughs> depressingly hopeless, but to have hope. And we're part of the solution. Jesus wants to use his church. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to finish with a song or two. And I'd love to just pray for us. Is that okay? Let's pray. Maybe it'd be good just to pause and reflect, recognizing sometimes our own frustrations that overwhelm us at the state of the world and how sometimes we feel numbed and I kind of, as I was praying and thinking about this, thinking maybe we just sometimes feel um, inadequate or numbed by not knowing how to respond to the challenges we see around us. But Jesus says in his word, do do not despise the day of small beginnings. The littlest thing that you do for the kingdom, Jesus sees and it sends out ripples. That kind word that you speak to a person. That smile you offer to someone who is often rejected. That time you spend listening to someone. The money you've given. The resources you've loaned to others with expecting nothing in return. Your prayers where you shared the gospel and you talked about the wonders of Jesus, where you've made an invitation for meals and served the least, the last, and the lost. Jesus sees those things, and he says, don't despise the day of small beginnings. You've no idea what what you do for the least of these. You do for me, and the kingdom comes. So, Jesus, we want to see open doors before us, and we say to you, Lord, Would you help us to be obedient in walking through doors that you've opened and to be willing, Father, for you to close doors and for us to understand your leading and your guidance in these days. May we use our days, our minutes, our moments wisely to see your kingdom come, that we'd bring you pleasure and joy like the church in Philadelphia did. Knowing, Lord, that we're we're not trying to win your approval. You love us not because of our deeds and our actions, but because our simply our hearts that say yes to you, Jesus. And you give us the resources we need to follow through because it's not by might, not by power, but it's by your spirit. So when we fail and when we are weak and when we're scared, will you fill us with your spirit to be obedient to your call? Let's just take a moment in silence to bring our own prayers to God and just commit our path to him to say yes to the open doors he lays before us in these days.